This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. Hi there. You know that genetics plays a huge role in our health, and more people are using genetic testing to determine risk for diseases like cancer for themselves and their children than ever before. I want to introduce you to Orchid. It's the only company that does whole genome testing for embryos, testing before your child is born. If you're doing IVF, this is a clear choice now because you can reduce the risk for thousands of single gene disorders, including heritable forms of autism, pediatric cancers, and birth defects. Check them out at orchidhealth.com and use the code RAZIB, R-A-Z-I-B, when signing up to skip the wait list. Hey, everybody. This is Razib with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast, and I am here with a uh... You know, a very special guest. This is what we always say, but, you know, I do feel like it's very special. This is my second uh, Indo-European episode with Dr. David Anthony, who a lot of you know and love, uh, read his work, uh, have read his book the, uh, about the Horace Wheel and, uh, you know, the Indo-Europeans and all that stuff. And he's got a new book coming out and he's got all these papers he's on with David Wright. Uh, there just took a lot to to, to get through. So um, let's just like start. Although, uh, David, if you want to introduce your affili- affiliations, where you are right now, we can do that and then we can go. OK, so uh, I'm David Anthony. Uh, the book you were talking about is The Horse, the Wheel and Language. I just have to plug that once. Uh, and uh, I'm uh, I'm retired from teaching at, at Hartwick College in Oneonta, New York. But I'm also a research associate with David Reich's lab in human evolutionary biology at Harvard. So those are my affiliations. Yeah, yeah. And so um, we got to talk, first of all, um, you know, I think first let's talk about a couple of things in terms of how you feel in terms of the high-level changes over the last two years. Our last conversation was about two years ago. Uh, I also want to make sure and, like, hit the issue with the horses because uh, there's a lot of horse stuff. That's happened, and obviously it's important in the horse wheel language to get that right. I don't think it's totally resolved, but we've made some progress since the last time we talked. So can we get can we get to that stuff right now? Sure, I can, I'd be glad to talk about horses first. Uh, yeah, so uh, there was a big paper that brought horse horse before the horse before the cart. Yes, yeah. the horse before the cart. Uh, actually, literally, that's the way this conversation will go. Um, uh, so, yeah, so uh, there was this definitive study of horse DNA, Librato et al., uh, two years ago, um, uh, a project run by Ludovic Orlando, um, and uh, I was a co-author on that, um, and that definitively determined that the kind of horses we have today, called uh, DOM2, um, came together genetically in uh, the modern genetic profile, around 22-2300 BC, in the steppes north of the uh, Caspian Sea, the, the Volga-Ural steppes uh, in what's today Russia. Um, but it treated that uh, as an event, uh, the appearance of Dom II at about 2200 BC. And the data they presented, so I disagree with the way they presented it, the data they presented actually suggests there's a long-phased evolution of domesticated horses in that region. Uh, starting in 5500 BC with wild horses and 4500 BC, you can see a couple of samples that are found with domesticated cattle and sheep. 
4,500 BC, a thousand years after the initial wild horses, and they're shifted in the Dom II direction. Uh, and then you have the Yamnaya and Mykop horses that are the direct ancestors of uh, Dom II, have almost all of the genetic traits of Dom II. And then finally, uh, Dom II itself at around 2200 BC. But so there's this long history before that, and people were riding horses uh, before uh, Dom II appeared. And that's, of course, the important aspect of how uh, horses affected human culture. Uh, and uh, so then recently, just last year, there was a, a study by Troutman et al. that I was a co-author on, uh, organized out of uh, uh, University of Helsinki uh, by Volker Hyde. Uh, and uh, that showed for the first time pathologies in the human skeleton that are related to riding uh, that affect mainly the lower back, the pelvis, and the upper legs. Uh, and uh, some of them are pathologies, like the articulation between uh, the femur and, and the pelvis. Some of them are just muscle changes, uh, but they're muscle changes that are uh, typical of uh, horseback riders. So you begin to see that. Uh, we had uh, five cases in Yamnaya, and there were two cases that were pre-Yamnaya. Uh, one the Tsongrad individual in Hungary, 4200 BC, with all of the lower trunk muscular traits of a habitual rider. I was not surprised by that uh, because the samples in Ludovic Orlando's um, Librato et al. paper uh, that were dated to 4500 BC showed a substantial shift in the direction of Dom II. And you put that together with a rider dated to about the same period, it, it's not so surprising. Uh, so I think riding goes way back uh, in the steppes. And of course, that allowed people to move around a lot more. I don't think that they were using horses in warfare, though, because uh, genetically, these horses were more skittish. Uh, the traits that are defined by Dom II relate to uh, back architecture, making it easier to carry a rider, and to mood, uh, making it uh, easier for the horse to tolerate uh, the sudden movements and noises that are associated with humans. Um, and the Yamnaya horses were probably more skittish. They didn't have the full suite of genetic traits. So I think they probably were harder to ride. Probably you didn't ride them. If you were faced with an aggressive individual coming towards you uh, on those horses, you probably dismounted uh, to deal with that individual. But the horse could still get you there much, much faster than anybody expected, and that's a huge advantage in uh, tribal warfare. So I... So yeah. Me, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, you know, you've obviously, you know, and like some of this you hinted at at the previous, in the previous uh, podcast two years ago, because obviously the it was in preparation, you had some of the data. So let me uh, review or summarize and see if I'm getting this correctly in terms of your own perspective. So let's say about 4,000 years ago, we have a big bang of these light war chariots, Sintoshna light war chariots in the Volga Ural region with particular types of horses that are very, very um, adapted to being hooked up on these chariots. They're larger. They're a little bit more coordinated. Uh, their docility or um, the ability to be directed uh, is more domesticated, more human. And this is the uh, star phylogeny of the modern horses, right? Yeah. And we see this especially in the Y chromosome with the stallions. Uh, but earlier, there were other horse lineages. And obviously, we know the Mongolian wild horse, which is related to the bow tie horse. There were European horses. Uh, there were horses in the New World uh, at the at the beginning of the Holocene. They went extinct. They were probably eaten. But in any case, um, so, so the horse lineage, 
all over the place. And uh, what you're suggesting is it was actually earlier than the Sintashta cultural explosion. There were also halting earlier events that made a difference, a marginal, I mean, actually more than a marginal difference in terms of, uh, you know, social technology, in terms of their mobility that gave the Yamnaya peoples, these steppe peoples, an advantage, even if they didn't have the light war horse chariot that the Sintashta spread about 4,000 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the Sintashta horses were fairly modern in the sense that they could uh, tolerate. Uh, there's every evidence that the earliest chariots around 2000 BC at Sintashta were, were used in warfare. Uh, there's weapons buried with them. And so to get uh, a horse, an animal whose evolution is the, is is based on their skittishness, you know, they... They startle very fast, and then once they startle, they're the fastest things in uh, the Eurasian continent in terms of getting away from a threat, and that was their survival mechanism. So, so to get an animal like that to go forward into a threat, into warfare, took a lot of genetic manipulation, and so it happened gradually. You don't, you, you, we shouldn't think of uh, domesticated horses as being a single thing. Uh, so, I, I. I, I think it's fairly clear that Yamnaya people were riding horses. They certainly had the uh, pathologies associated with horseback riding. And, and even earlier people probably were riding horses. But I think it was probably a trick at the time. You know, it, it didn't spread quickly because it was thought of, we might think of this the way we uh, today think of um, camel riding. We think of it as associated with a particular area maybe a particular ethnic groups, and it's not something that everybody is going to copy and pick up and do. It's thought of something as, that's difficult. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, maybe elephant riding might be the same kind of thing. It's, it's, uh, it's seen as a skill that's, that, that you find in a particular part of the world primarily, um, and you don't expect to find it in North America or in Italy, uh, although you do with Hannibal. <laughs> Um, but, um, but horseback riding in the beginning, I think was in that category. It, it wasn't the way we think of horseback riding it was more difficult. And so only people who had really spent a lot of time around horses, uh, were very good at it. Well, okay. So, uh, let me, I'm going to stick out horses just a little bit more. Horses are super important, obviously. Uh, so let me, uh, posit something partly from reading you, uh, Christian, Chris Johnson, uh, you know, watching people like Dan Davies podcasts and stuff like that on uh, the Corios, uh, these young men. So I'm imagining uh, two modalities and tell me if this is totally wrong. One modality would be uh, kind of young braves. Uh, maybe they get on some ponies and they use the ponies to move rapidly across the landscape to do their raids. And, uh, you know, they're not cavalry. Uh, they're not fighting from the ponies. They use the ponies to move. And then there's another modality where you have these ponies, um, uh, maybe dragging carts, uh, maybe more domestic usage. I don't know. I know they have oxes, so they don't need ponies necessarily. Uh, yeah, so I think you're essentially right. The There's a modality where you can use horses in warfare, even if you're not cavalry, uh, just to get to the place. And actually, when you look at Plains Indian uh, warfare, um, very often, you know, they brought boys who held onto the horses while the men went and conducted the raid, and they came back and they rode away. Uh, the other, though, I think the more important usage of horses early on was that they greatly increase the efficiency of animal herding. 
So if you're herding uh, cattle and sheep on foot, uh, there's a limited number, even if you if you use a dog, you can expand it, but there's a limited number of sheep that the herder can handle. Um, and if you get on horseback, the estimates, like for Mongolian herders, are that they can handle two to three times more animals. So without an increased input in labor, horses allow you to increase your herd sizes by two or three times. And then you have a surplus in animals that you can use for political relationships, gift giving, and feasting. And that's just as important as the uh, warfare aspect of early riding. The fact that it made it possible to be rich, to have a surplus counted in animals uh, as a nomad. And so the very invention, the, the earliest stage in the invention of a steppe nomadism, which I think the Yamnaya people were the first people to uh, really fully commit to a nomadic lifestyle. Um, uh, that was made possible partly by horses and then partly by wheeled vehicles. Wheeled vehicles are for your heavy uh, residential needs, essentially moving home, uh, food and water, uh, fuel, uh, and the horses are for scouting and for making your herds bigger and for warfare. And you put those two forms of transportation together and it looks like they came together for the first time right around 3300 BC, just at the beginning of Yamnaya. And that's one of the major reasons that Yamnaya took off uh, the way it did. They had invented a way of exploiting grasslands that nobody had ever had before. Yeah. So, um, you know, just to recap, I think the way that I like to, that, that I would think of what you're just saying right now is obviously, for example, in England, uh, there were fossil fuels, there was coal, and it wasn't a major resource uh, until the 18th century. Like sometimes people would use it to fire, but it wasn't industrial. That energy was not unlocked. Once the energy was unlocked, then all of a sudden Britain became this world superpower. And so what you're positing right now is the horse is basically uh, triggering an economic revolution, an economic revolution that has all these knock-on effects that might be able to explain uh, why the Yamnaya, why, you know, like I've done some back of the envelope math, how much like Yamnaya ancestries in the world based on their, and it's orders of magnitude of all of the peoples that were alive 5,000 years ago. You know, we have hundreds and hundreds of millions of people uh, that are Yamnaya. Like if you just like do the multiplication of the math, right? Uh, so obviously, you know, economic history is driving demography here. Um, it's a little less, um, maybe a little less sexy than uh, Corios, uh, you know, pony riders, <laughs> but uh, it's just as important, right? And so um, let's talk about the wheel, horse wheel and language. Let's just go in sequence right now because we got this thing going right now. So um, what's going on with the wheel, with the cart since like, you wrote your book back oh, like 15 years ago? Okay, so there's a there's been a lot more um, wheel vehicle finds in the steps. Uh, the Yamnaya culture was not only um, the the culture that had the direct ancestors of Dom two horses, they also had the first wheeled vehicles in the steppes. And uh, wheeled vehicles were invented after about 3500 BC. There's no evidence for them before that. Um, and uh, after that, they become very widespread between, say, 3400 BC and 3100 BC. You find wheeled vehicles from Mesopotamia to Denmark. And uh, a lot of them in uh, the, in, uh, the steppes uh, north of the Caspian and the Black Seas to the present day. Uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, so wheel vehicles uh, spread across the um, the steps with Yamnaya, and they were central to Yamnaya ritual ideas because there, there are about 300, 400 uh, wagon burials in Yamnaya uh, graves. 
where they put either the whole wagon or parts of the wagon uh, in the grave with them. And that just shows how central uh, the wagon uh, was to uh, Yamnaya identity. Now, the, these wagons were solid-wheeled. You know, they were heavy. They weren't, they weren't racing vehicles. Um, but they were meant to carry food, water, supplies, and maybe provide a place for people to get out of the rain and, and to actually sleep inside. Uh, so they weren't meant to be racing vehicles. They were probably pulled by oxen and not by horses. Um, we didn't have the proper kind of collar to put on a horse so it could carry really heavy loads uh, without choking off the bottom of its windpipe. Um, uh, an ox yoke, if you put it on a horse, it, it hits on the bottom of the horse's neck and chokes the horse if you put really heavy weight on it. With the, the horse collar, the round horse collar, uh, was a medieval invention. So uh, before the medieval period, horses were mainly used for riding or very light traction not for pulling things like these Yamnaya wagons. So you have to imagine the Yamnaya people kind of moving from one campsite to another uh, with all of their domestic needs in the wagon and with uh, the people mounted on horses. Uh, and that would allow them to spread their herds out uh, and uh, really efficiently manage very large herds. So if you manage large herds, though, if your herds grow in size so that you can have a surplus you have to keep them moving unless you're going to fodder them and there's no evidence that uh, steppe people foddered uh their herd animals uh even up to genghis khan he's described as as uh letting the herds out in the winter time on the steppe uh and uh uh so the uh the yamnaya people had these um uh horses that that made the herds larger and the, in order to feed the herds you had to keep them moving because they ate up the grass in any one area so just the fact that they became rich in animals sort of impelled them towards a way of life that kept the animals moving so they wouldn't eat everything up in a local area i don't think it was a form of geographic determinism by the way i'd see it's just the way there's uh, in the steppes, before Yamnaya came, everybody lived in the river valleys. And it's sort of like in the United States, the Missouri River Valley going through the plains. Um, all of the agricultural towns were in the Missouri River Valley, not out on the high plains. Because uh, that was the only place you could grow corn. The same way, in the Eurasian steppes, there were these large river valleys, the Volga, the Dnieper, the Don, that cut down through the steppes from north to south and flow into the Black and Caspian Seas. And it's in those river valleys that the whole Eneolithic population before Yamnaya, everybody lived in the river valleys. That was the place where you had shelter from winter winds. There were deer, um, there was fish, uh, there was firewood, there was, there was resources in the river valleys, but they're very narrow. And so the population gets to a certain size, and you have to start looking at the grasslands in between, and nobody was exploiting that until Yamnaya. Uh, and then Yamnaya figured out a way just to keep moving, uh, move the animals across those uh, pastures. And so that what had been wild open steppe became a pasture that belonged to somebody. Uh, and you had to invent the entire economic and political system for managing uh, resources that previously hadn't belonged to anybody. But now a lot of different emerging Yamnaya people are beginning to claim these places. If you want to listen to the rest of the podcast, you know where to subscribe.